Welcome to the Faith is Not Blind podcast. I'm Bruce Hafen. Today we're in Denver talking to Bill Barnett. Bill, thanks for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Bill, where did you grow up? I, uh, I was born in Texas, um, but my father was a uh, national park ranger. Uh, so by the time I got to junior high school, I moved from Texas and I lived in uh, Bryce Canyon National Park, Mount Rainier National Park, Yellowstone National oh, Park, yeah, Carlsbad Life. Yeah, it was. How long have you been a member of the church? I've been, a, I joined the church when I was a freshman in college and that was 1967. Hmm. How did you, uh, had, your, had your parents been religious? Did you have a religious background? No, my parents uh, were not religious at all. I grew up in a, uh, they weren't atheistic, but uh, we didn't go to church. Hmm. Um, because we uh, lived in the national parks, normally there was no schools close by. And uh, so when I first, I went away to school at a school called Wasatch Academy on Mount Pleasant, Utah. Oh, how did you end up there? Um, because at that time we lived in Bryce Canyon and my parents oh, was close by. Knew, knew it close oh, yeah. by. Actually, I started off at Shawnigan Lake Boys School in Canada, which is on Vancouver Island because my mother's Canadian. Um, but then when they moved to Bryce Canyon, uh, Wasatch Academy was much closer. It had a reputation for having park service kids. I see, yeah. Is that where you found the church? It is. I, I dated a girl there and, and she handed me a marvelous work and a wonder and that's where it all started. So uh, uh, once I graduated from Wasatch Academy, I went to Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Oh, interesting choice. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's where I was baptized and joined the church I when I was a freshman at SMU. So in the early going, I guess I'm interested in uh, what, what, what formed your testimony? What formed it? What informed it? What was it like in the early stages? And then what did it become like as time went on? Um, I think early on it was driven more by uh, I, had, I had a girlfriend who was a member of the church and wouldn't have anything to do with me unless I joined the church. <laughs> that kind of started it. Um, so I read A Marvelous Work and Wonder, and then I read a, the Book of Mormon, and I joined the church. I, I didn't really know a lot about it. Um, I eventually no longer was uh, with that young girl, um, but I, I didn't leave the church. I kind of stayed in the church, and I'm, I'm amazed that I did back in those early days um, because at SMU, this was in 1967 and 68, before the Internet, they would have books or, uh, of the school, said all the courses involved in the school and what the school was and that sort of thing. And at SMU, they, we had, there was a student body population back then of maybe eight to 10,000. And at the very back of the book, it, it had the different denominations of people that were in various churches. So it would have Methodists, 7,000, Episcopal, Paleans, 1,000, Baptists, 800, and then it came down to Mormons one. And that was you. And that was me. Um, I had joined a fraternity back then, and uh, as a result of being in a fraternity, I wanted to go have fun with my fraternity brothers. I basically wanted to be able to do whatever I want without consequences, the doctrine of knee whores. And I had joined the church and I don't know how much I knew that the church was true then. 
Um, it felt good, but I don't know how strong my testimony was, but it felt good enough that I couldn't just go drinking and carousing and stuff with my fraternity brothers unless I felt I could prove the church is wrong. So I tried reading every anti-Mormon book I could get my hands on that existed back in the 1960s. So this would be Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History, Edie Howe's Mormonism Unveiled, The Godmakers back then. But for whatever reason, um, I was driven, I would read their, their book and I would come to a footnote and I, I, I love libraries, I've always loved libraries, so I'd go wandering through the stacks to find their quotes where they were coming up with this stuff. And I'd look up the quote and I'd go, I don't know how they could say this in the book, this isn't what they're quoting, doesn't say what they're saying it says. And so I, I did that for several years and mm -hmm. while I couldn't, I, I definitely found that I could not disprove the church by doing that, but it didn't prove the church either, so I didn't. Why, why did it not disprove the church, if you, if you read that much stuff? I, I mean, I, I've read it all. I, I've even continued reading that stuff into the modern day. I've listened to John DeLynn, I've read Martin Snuffer, I've read the CES letter, and I have examined all of their stuff, and it, it's weak. I, I am a lawyer by trade, but back then I didn't know it. But I was protected enough that I shifted the burden of proof to them, not to the church having to prove it was true, but they had to prove it was not true. And, and their arguments were just weak. They were not supported logically. They were not supported factually. Uh, they had more of an agenda than, than an honest perception of looking for the truth. I mean, That's a, a very interesting point and an unusual one. Bill, because you're a lawyer, the, the term burden of proof is familiar to me, to you, as it is to me. Yeah. What does that mean and how do you apply it to this situation? Well, in, in my situation, um, I did a lot of criminal defense work. And in criminal defense work, uh, I'd have to stand in front of a jury. And my job was uh, to convince them that the prosecution had not proved their case against my client beyond a reasonable doubt. And I used to always explain to juries um, that there were different amounts of burden of proof. Uh, if you have a, an area like this, and this is non-belief over here and total belief over here, that there could be a belief in the middle, which is a preponderance of the evidence. Just 51, I believe it, 51% to 49%. Meaning it's 51% more likely that it's that it, this way than Or that, that way. Yeah. And then the next level of burden of proof would be clear and convincing evidence, which I would always tell juries is about 75% or so, and the DAs would always object, but the judges always let me do it anyway. Maybe another way to so, say that, I just I want to be sure people grasp this because I think it's helpful. Could we say with 75%, with if, if the standard in a legal case is clear and convincing evidence, and it's 75, does that mean it is... Uh, the likelihood that it's true is 75%, the probability, is that a simple way to say that? It, it, the probability is, is, is high at that point. So okay. you've, you've gone from just that it's likely to it's very probable. Okay. And then in criminal cases, uh, the burden is beyond a reasonable doubt, which means that you've got to be very, very convinced. So beyond 75%, it, Yeah, to I would tell juries it's 90, 95%. Yeah. You've got to be pretty doggone sure that Before what you're we deciding, convict someone. Before we convict someone. I feel that 
in, in my situation, I was very lucky that I found that when I was younger, I didn't know that's what I was doing. Yeah. But I would read the anti-LDS or anti-Mormon literature, and they weren't even coming close to approaching burdens of proof. Uh, now, at the stage you were reading that, let me just be sure I understand this. If I understood you right, you said you started off trying to disprove the church. That is your motive. My motive was to disprove the yeah. church, and it was for purely hedonistic reasons. <laughs> I wanted to go be a fraternity kid that could drink, carouse, have illicit sex relations, whatever it was back in, in those days of the 60s. Um, I, I wanted to be able to do that, but my conscience wouldn't let me do that unless I knew that the church was not true. And so I figured, well, I would read the anti-stuff to prove the church is not true. And, what ha and I would never recommend it to anybody, but for whatever reason, I was absolutely, and I've been driven my whole life to the study of epistemology, which is the study of knowledge, ontology, quantum physics, evolution. I, I, I just have an insatiable curiosity, and, and I had it back then, and so I would read these books, um, but I'd go, man, that, that statement is awfully one-sided. I mean, even in criminal cases, we have jury instructions where we tell the jury, when you listen to this witness, does this witness have an axe to grind? Does he have a connection to one side of the case or the other? Does he have something he needs to prove? Why should you believe this witness? We do the same thing with experts. I had numerous trials where my expert argues against their expert. And, and we have jury instructions that say, this is what you've got to go through to, to determine whether you believe this person. Um, you know, what is their recall of the facts? What is their connection to the case? What, what would make you believe them? Um, I did not know I was doing it when I was younger. I knew I was doing it when I was older, but when I was younger, that's what I was doing. I, I, I was by instinct, yeah. I was by instinct a very good juror. And so I would read Fon Brody's No Man Knows My History, and I, that was probably the first book, anti-book I read at, back in the 60s. And everybody said how great a scholar she was and stuff. And here I am, a freshman and sophomore in college, and I would read that and go, <laughs> this well, is not good scholarship. It's not that, well backed up. Some of what you said up. was because you were reading the footnotes. I yeah. Mean, you, you were saying, if you just read from? the block yeah. and if you accept it, and you should do the same thing on the Internet today. If you just read it and accept it as true, you're a dead duck. You have to literally have the, a sufficient curiosity to challenge it, to, to be able to get back mm. to square one of philosophy. Um, I look at all the anti-stuff as uh, it's like the branches and leaves of a tree. Okay, so their opinions are the leaves. The church isn't true because the book of Abraham wasn't written properly or, or the words don't match up with the papyri. That's an opinion. If you've got that opinion, that's fine, but you better back it up. So, you, so the next thing is, is what is the premise upon which that opinion is based? And you just keep backing up that premise till you get to the foundation. And when you get to the foundation, it really becomes pretty simple. And that is, did Joseph Smith see what he saw? Is the Book of Mormon true? And when you get back to that foundation, 
it makes the other stuff kind mm. of diminish and go away. Very interesting. Uh, your training and, and your experience is so helpful with this. One of the things you said prompts this question. Uh, you said when a jury is listening to a witness, you try to tell them as a courtroom lawyer, consider what possible motives this person may have for interpreting the situation this way or that way. Can you apply that to uh, people who are reading about the church online? How are they supposed to know what somebody's motive is? What they would, what I would suggest that they need to do, well, there's only four ways you can learn things, right? There's, there's the analytical method or the rational method. Uh, this is just epistemology stuff. So analytical, rational, two plus two is four. You're thinking in your own mind. It's kind of like when um, in Doctrine and Covenants 9, when the Lord says to Oliver Cowder, you took no thought but to think about it. You didn't, you got to think it out in your own mind. So that's one way of learning. Um, typically Einstein would do thought experience. That, that's what that is, analytical thinking. The second way is epistemological or experience, what we actually experience. That's the scientific method. You can do a test, you can try it. Um, the third method is by learning and by authority. So. If you're my professor and I believe everything you say and then I find out that something you did is wrong, my testimony's gone. It's going to fall apart. And the fifth one is by intuition or we would say revelation in the church. Uh, those are the only four ways you can learn anything. There are not other ways. But when you get to the end of the Book of Mormon, the Lord... Um, says, when you read these things, if you ask with a sincere heart and an open mind, I will disclose it to you by the Holy Ghost. Also, when you're baptized, what's the first thing that happens after you're baptized? You're given the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I thought about that a long time. Why is that the case? And the reason is, in my mind, is because that is our direct conduit with our Heavenly Father. And, and it's the only of the four methods of learning, it's the only one where we are totally, completely, and personally responsible. If you screw up analytical or reasoning, then maybe you just have a logical fallacy that messes up your thinking. If you do an experiment wrong, that could mess up your beliefs. If you listen to the wrong authority, if you listen to an anti-Mormon and just take their word at face value, um, then your belief is built upon sand. The only one that is absolutely true, which is perhaps the hardest for people to understand and to, and to feel, is the inspiration and revelation. But we all feel uncomfortable with that because we go, gosh, I feel this way, but is that me or am I just feeling this way? And so until you get to a point where you learn to trust that, you can be pulled and drawn by these other three methods. So if you're, if you're having a faith crisis in the church, you need to understand that and know that the most dramatic of the, while testimony is built on four, all four ways of learning, and I've spent my whole life all four ways of learning, um, but it was primarily the first three ways and not the revelatory way until I got older in my life. Mm. You said an interesting thing about the, the revelatory way, the Holy Ghost, the promise of Moroni, Moroni 10, 4 and 5, uh, which I hadn't thought about in quite the way you put it, that the, the reason that one is so significant is not just because it's the Holy Ghost, but because he connects you to 
whom? It, it, it connects you straight to your Heavenly Father. Yeah. So I mean, and now the, you're personally yeah. responsible right. for so that. So that's the source. It's the, the sort of communications vehicle between you and God. Right. And, and when that relationship is strong, it's that's like, a source of knowledge. Huh? It's like Mark Twain said with Huckleberry Finn, you can't pray a lie. <laughs> so the bottom line is that if you are true to that and your Heavenly Father, you won't go wrong. Back to the question about motive. How, what would you say to somebody who's wanting to learn about the church and they are, they're looking at material that's online and they don't know who this is from. You know, you can't tell that. You, you click no. it, you Google it, you get a list, you go read about it. You don't know where the, whether this came from the church or the church's worst enemy. Uh, and you were saying earlier that unless you know the motives of the person who wrote that there, you can't really evaluate the strength of their testimony. How would you help somebody deal with the motive problem? You've got to, you've got to stop long enough to ask yourself, what, why is this person writing this? Uh, uh, yeah. Is this person really being honest or is this person trying to convince me? If, if a person's really honest, they don't care whether you accept it or not. If they use adjectives, um, any adjectives which tilt things, mm. you can start to get suspicious. Um, and that goes both ways. You can get overzealous people of a belief that want somebody to believe something. You, you could get somebody in the church that's overzealous that twists it, it twist it the other way. Yeah. That's wrong too. Um, so you have to, I know that with detectives, and I used to have a pretty good investigator that would use kind of a forensic analysis in people's statements to try to determine whether they were telling the truth or not. And they could do that by the words they used, by the way they put together some of their sentences, by the adjectives they used. And, and he could come back to me and say, this guy's lying. You know, and so it was a matter then of, of, of trying to find out mm -hmm. why. But I'm not good at that, and that, that takes a lot of skill, but, but basically I would say you have to be like a juror. You have to be like a juror in the case. So if, you're, if you read this anti-K stuff on the web, you've got to at least be a juror and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to give the other side equal opportunity well, to present their case. But it doesn't say anti at the top of the page you're reading, does it? It won't, but you'll get it, you'll know, you'll know. I mean, there's several websites out there that, that try to pretend that they are fair and that they are honest. I don't know if you want them named in here, but I, I, I've listened to them all. I've, I've read the CES letter. I've, I've listened to John DeLynn. I've read Denver Snuffer's stuff. And, and, and you can pick up on it. They have, they have an agenda, and you can tell by their adjectives. It's like it started with Fawn Brody and No Man Knows My History. I could tell by her adjectives that she was not fair. When you say that kind of material has an agenda, what do you mean? It wants to convince you that the church is not true. It, it's not just saying, gee, here's a problem. What about, it doesn't ask an open-ended question. It, it's like a leading question that we would use in court. It, it doesn't say, well, Joseph Smith, uh, how, it doesn't say, how did Joseph Smith translate or dictate or produce the book of Abraham? It doesn't say that. It'll say, Joseph Smith, it, it makes assumptions. For example, it'll make an assumption in the book of Abraham that the papyri that we have in the book of Mormon 
doesn't match up with what the Book of Mormon, I mean the Book of Abraham says, and therefore he translated it wrong. They're assuming that he had something in front of him and that he was, yeah. and that isn't how it happened okay, at all. Yeah. But that's how a website like that okay, will treat that's that. That's a good example. Uh, this has really been helpful, Bill, and I, I just so. want to repeat what is especially interesting to me about this is that when you first ran across the discoveries that you've described here about the, the difficulties with really believing the evidence of, of critics of the church was when you yourself were trying to disprove it. You, so your, your motive, you were predisposed to want to accept that, but there was something uh, in, really in, in your neutrality that... Uh, I, I, that I was you question it. Interesting. I, I was lucky. I was protected. Yeah. I went through that, and after after I went through that, my next step was I, I went through another kind of I wouldn't call it a crisis, but another questioning area. I went, well, good grief! How do I even know Christianity is true? So I went and I bought the scriptures of every religion in the world, and 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 I read the Tao Te Ching. I. I I read many things of Buddhism. They don't have scriptures, but I read ports of the Tripitaka. I read the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism. I bought a Quran and I read that. And because I went, I don't know that, you know, I feel pretty good about joining the church, but I don't know that Christianity is even true. So I had to back up to that yeah. point and I read all those scriptures. It became real apparent to me when I did that, that Christianity was, was true. It, that that became very apparent to me just reading the scriptures and I didn't go to commentaries on what the Quran said I didn't go to commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita I just read the scriptures straight themselves I mean I wanted to be able to read it get it straight from the horse's mouth I did not want it yeah. to to be interpreted by somebody else what I was supposed to I thought I'm a smart guy I can understand what this is supposed to mean so so I paid the price and I did all that. And after I did all that, I went, I didn't have any trouble after that. I thought Christianity's true. And with Christianity, I didn't have the problems that Joseph Smith did of which church is right. To me, it was either Catholics or Mormons. No, those are the only two that really had a leg to stand on in my opinion. And, and the LDS church just <coughs> seemed absolutely true. So after I did that for the next 20 years, I was a good faithful Mormon. Um, I, I still, I, on the scale of beyond reasonable doubt, I was to the point of beyond reasonable doubt, but the door was still cracked open a little bit. And, and then I got cancer. And uh, I, I went into the hospital. Um, it was for prostate cancer. It was supposed to be, and it was a very aggressive prostate cancer that had metastasized. So for me, doing the, the, uh, whatever, where you, it was, surgery was pretty much the only option because it was aggressive and, and it had to be done now. Even so, they told me, oh, you'll be in the hospital one night and out. Maybe you'll be in the hospital two nights. Everything went wrong. Um, I was in the hospital 45 days. The first three or four days were life or death. Uh, they had to put me under surgery several times. Um, they quarantined me in the hospital because they thought I had that skin-eating bacterial stuff and, and, and they didn't know if I was going to live or not. Um, and this just happened this past October. Um, but during that time, it was, it was during that 45 days, I had experiences that closed the door. Um, 
the veil was literally pierced. And I don't want to go too far into that and make people think I saw or did more than I saw or did. But I will say, I used to get mad at Elder Packer because he'd say, these things are sacred, they're not secret, and that's why we don't talk about them. And, and I used to wonder about the verse of Christ praying words that could not be repeated or not said. Mm. And, 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 I, and, I, and I, I admit, I got upset at Elder Packer, you know, well, if you saw Jesus, why didn't you just say it instead of saying it's secret or sacred and not secret? I learned it's no, sacred. You know. Yeah. I know. Um, I, I had experiences during that 45 days um, when literally life hung in the balance. And I relate it to like the Martin Handcart Company. Through those extremities, I learned not, it's like it, I, at one point I had people come to me and say, you ought to sue these doctors. You know, they really, they messed up. There's no way I'm going to do that. I'm a lawyer. I know what that involves. I also know my doctor had nothing but the best of intentions for me. It's just some stuff happened. And so there's no way I was going to sue him. But I remember reading about a Martin Handcart Company Sunday, uh, Sunday school in Salt Lake once where people said they should have never sent him out that late. They, and they, they criticized the leaders of the church for sending out the Handcart Company so late. And an old man gets up in the Sunday school class and says, you know nothing of what you're talking about. It was, yeah, we had some tough times on the handcart company, but it was through our extremities that we learned of God, and I would never change it for anything. Mm -hmm. My experience in the hospital is the same thing. There is no way I would want to go through that again. There were times I was praying so fervently, I wanted the Lord to either take me or to take away the pain. It was so bad. It, I didn't care which way it went, whether I lived or died. I just wanted it to end. Um, but through that experience, any doubt that I had was removed. I learned that God is there. He is our Heavenly Father. He knows each and every one of us personally, very personally. I know that Jesus is our brother, that he atoned for each of us individually, that it was not a blanket atonement like I atone you. <laughs> he knows each one of us personally and what we have gone through. He knows exactly what we experience because he has experienced it. When we cry tears, he's crying too because he's already cried the tears yeah. that we're crying. I, I know that, and I, I, I cannot, and, and like Brother Packer now, I, I will not go into why, because it is sacred, but I, will, I bear my testimony. It's absolutely true. And, and I know, I don't like saying the church is true, because we've said that in sacrament meetings for forever, and people get up and say that out of custom and tradition more than real. To me as a lawyer, to say I know it's true, I mean, you better, your words better be right. You, you better be accurate. I, I built my whole trial career on the exactness of words and made a big deal of it in trials. So 
I don't like that phrase, the church is true, but I do like the phrase, I know that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God on earth. Is it perfect? No. As leaders, are we perfect? No. But I know that it is led and given to us to the extent that we can understand. I can only understand to a certain point, and if the Lord tries to explain something beyond what I can understand, yeah. I can't, just like I'm trying to express yeah. to you now, yeah. I, I can only go to a certain point. And, and so anyone that has a crisis of faith, I would, I would strongly say that be a juror. Listen to both sides before you make that decision. And when you do listen, be as honest and open-minded as you can. Don't have an agenda going into it. Now, I had an agenda when I started. I wanted to leave the church and be a wild fraternity brother and have no consequences for it. But for whatever reason, my makeup didn't, didn't, didn't allow that to happen. But I would say have an open mind, listen to both sides. If you read something that's anti, then go to those websites that will perhaps answer those questions. You can go to the Neil Maxwell Institute Insight. You can go to the Fair Mormon website. You can find books that are written by uh, apologists of the church. Um, you know, you can listen to podcasts. You can watch on YouTube uh, talks by Dan Peterson and Truman Madsen and these other people that I have high regard for. Um, and when you listen to both sides, if you have an open heart, if you can sit quietly and, and meditate about it, David O. McKay said meditation was important, and I do that even though it's kind of a Buddhist way of doing yeah. it. You listen in your mind and heart quietly, and the truth will come, hmm. and have confidence in that. If it makes you feel good, it's probably the Lord telling you something, but you have to realize where you are and how much you know that that's going to be filtered to an extent, the feelings are going to be stronger or lesser depending on how much knowledge you have. Bill, that's really valuable. It's so personal, it's so experience-based, and I really thank you for being here and sharing that yeah. with us today. Thank well, you. I, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for letting me come in. Thank you.